Knowing how to speak and understand a new language can be an invaluable tool when traveling, meeting new friends, or just even to master a new skill. But it's not always simple when you're bogged down by textbooks and structure classes. That's why so many people trust Rosetta Stone. Rosetta Stone is the most trusted language learning program, available on desktop or as an app. It truly immerses you in the language you want to learn, like Spanish, French, Italian, Chinese, and more. You won't just be studying English translations. The Rosetta Stone intuitive process helps you pick up a language naturally, first with words, then phrases, then sentences. Don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. Visit rosettastone.com rs10. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com rs10 today. Welcome into the Odds and Audibles podcast. I'm Matt Prey, Eric Scopel on the show as always. And it's Wednesday, which means it's hump day, which means it is Mailbag Wednesday. And you guys have submitted the questions. Eric has compiled them. And we now have six burning questions on football, football recruiting, basketball. We've got it all. All right, we're going to start here. Um, big picture football. We're going to, this is going to be a football start, and then we're going to end with a little basketball talk with the tournament time. Makes sense. Uh, first one from at GoDucksOR. Who makes the bigger leap from whatever you want to call the 2020 football season? <laughs> a little humor there. To this season, the offensive unit or the defensive unit? Um, <laughs> that's a good place to start because, you know, I think just from like a global perspective, I think it's interesting to look at it this way. And I, I think, where I start and, and kind of where I began my thought process with this is which group has the bigger ceiling, which group has the higher ceiling, which group could be better. And I like, which group has the room for more improvement. And I, I think based upon the personnel, like I think the offense has more room to make improvement. Now the question is who actually makes the bigger leap. That's, that's the question. I think that part is a little bit more complicated, but like I look at the offense and think quarterback play was not good in 2020 there's a chance it's going to be better because you have a new player at that position. Of course, the flip side is a chance it's worse because it's a different player at the position. I look at this offensive line and think, man, they should get better. It's the same groups all back. Basically, the, everyone's back at right, you know, at wide receiver, tight end, and running back too. I mean, I kind of look at those groups and think those groups I would think should be a little better. There's also the fact that it's now year two with Joe Moorhead as offensive coordinator. And I think usually you see some growth take place from that time period. And I think defensively, they do lose some pretty you know, key pieces there on the defensive line in the secondary, four guys who started a lot of games and Jordan Scott, Austin Fallu, Diomedi Lenore, and Nick Pickett. Those four are, are going to be missed. Um, and certainly there is room for improvement and, and, and the group could take a leap with someone filling in and, and, and maybe we see whoever the replacements at those spots be just be that much better. Um, but like, I, I look at the offense and think like if, if they get significantly better play at quarterback, which I don't think you can rule out, I'm not guaranteeing it. I think there's also a possibility the quarterback play is not great in 2021 again. And, and the season's a little underwhelming because of it, but like uh, in theory, whether it be Anthony Brown or Ty Thompson or Jay Butterfield or Robbie Ashford, it's going to be a new quarterback and that player could in theory kind of rise that level of uh, for the offense a lot. I mean that, you know, 
I think that basically what I'm getting at here is there's one position on offense that really impacts the caliber of play the most, and it's quarterback play. And that's the position for Oregon that's most in flux right now. So like if I'm pointing to one group that I think can really make a, you know, make a big leap, I'd say it's offense just because in theory quarterback play could get a lot better um, because it just wasn't very good down the stretch of, of 2020. Um, that's not to say I don't think the defense can get better too. But I just think the ceiling has a potential to be higher offensively because of kind of where we saw them play last season. I'm with you. I, I, I think the offense is probably the pick um, here because, like you said, quarterback play down the end of the, of the stretch of the season was not good. And Oregon, um, if, if they can stabilize that a little bit and be able to come out into a situation where They've got a healthy running back, whether that's Travis Dye or CJ Verdell. Um, both guys were nicked up at the end of last year, and you just kind of felt like that's very highly unusual. Your two, both your top running backs, both kind of being nicked up a little bit. Um, better quarterback play, I think, some stability along the offensive line as well. And we didn't see the receiving core at its best for a ton of snaps this season it's a good point too. COVID protocols yeah. and if if we can as a society get into a place where COVID isn't isn't really an issue anymore um because everyone's vaccinated and and it, and it drops down in terms of cases you know we might see a rotation at receiver with Jalen Red, Johnny Johnson um Micah Pittman and Devin Williams you know that four core group I guess throw in probably a Chris Hudson into that mix as well. And we haven't even mentioned Troy Franklin or Dante Thornton. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and now I think you're looking at a, at a group where not only is quarterback play maybe improved, uh, your receiving core is healthy and improved as well. And that will help. That will help quarterback. That'll help the running game too, because teams can't stack the box against a Verdell die combo. And I don't want to suggest that like the defense has peaked by any means because no, I think they still have tons of room to grow as well. Right, and I think I mean, I, and the reason I bring it up is I think people listening are like, well, couldn't Noah Sewell and Justin Flo and Dante Manning and some of these young guys who are going to be for for Sewell a second year, the other guys basically their first seasons, couldn't they make big steps for? I think yeah, but I also think like I look at the way the offense is, you know, and Matt brings up a good point at receiver. I kind of glossed over that, but there's a receiver group that like really wasn't ever. I mean, they always had three of their best four, but they never had all four of their best four really together at once. And then you throw in some of these highly regarded recruits, whether it be a guy like Hudson who's been with the team a year or, or it'd be these incoming guys. And I just think the ceiling there's really high. And I, I think I look at the defense and I think it's also a first year of a defensive coordinator. And that can be, and that's actually going to segue into our next question here in a second, but like that can be a learning process. And that you, mm-hmm. I don't think you can expect that they come out and just be amazing right away on defense. Um, and, and of course, like, I, I think there is room for imp- like Noah Sewell could take a huge step and be much better. Kayvon Thibodeau, like maybe he's the wild card in this whole thing. Like if he really elevates his game and, and becomes a, uh, you know, first team all American, you know, defensive player in the conference, you know, that kind of stuff and maybe breaks some schools, you know, sack records. And it's just incredible. Then maybe, maybe that changes this discussion a little bit. But I, I just think for me, like it's almost like there's more that's potentially different and better on offense than there is on defense because the um, the defense I think I just look at the players the defense is replacing and think I don't think outside of maybe 
whoever replaces Diomede Lenore at corner because that's a pretty valuable spot. Like I, I don't think you see massive growth from a couple interior linemen and one safety spot compared to what you could see from the improvements at quarterback, right. wide receiver, and offensive line. So I think that's why that's the pick. I don't again. I don't want to discount the defense, but let's jump to the next question because it ties right into it. From at Clayton B underscore twenty seven. Should we expect Coach DeRuder to have the defense playing at their full potential by the time we face Ohio State? I know it's early in the season, but I'm a Duck fan in Ohio and would love to see Oregon come out on top. Um, like, I think it's really a lot to ask them to play at their highest potential two games into a new defensive coordinator's coaching tenure. So, like, I, like yeah, I think it is a little bit too much to ask. Um, you know, the, ex- the expectation is that they're, like, full throttle – 10 out of 10, you know, turn the base to 11 kind of defense by the Buckeye game in mid-September. Like, that feels like you're asking a lot. That's not to say the defense can't be good and that they can't be competitive and that they can't win that game. But, like, I mean, was Oregon's defense at full potential when they played Auburn, you know, in the season opener a couple of years ago and Andy Avalos's first year? Like, I know they played okay in that game, but, like, they weren't they weren't at their – peak they got to their peak a couple weeks later you know three to four weeks later and I think I mean I think the reality is you probably need four to five games till you really have the chance to get there and again that's not to say this defense can't be really good out of the gate because I think they do return enough we talked about kind of a couple of the key spots there that they need to replace but like to think that they're going to be just like firing on all cylinders against the Buckeyes to me feels a little bit that feels very optimistic yeah, I, I think if this was a game where it was like early October. Right, yeah. That's where that's where I feel like you start finding it. Then I would say probably. Like Oregon's defense would probably, you know, be getting close to optimal levels. But second week of the year, um, I think that's asking a ton. And look. I, I think these games, these these non-conference big games. Um, I think they tend to more often than not be offensive shootouts or normal scoring levels than defensive slugfests. So, you know, I, I think that's probably a, a, a positive for Oregon is that, hey, like we have a good defense, but more than likely it doesn't really matter because neither team's going to be very good elite on the defensive side of the ball, you know, to start things off when you stack, you know, equal competition against each other. I think it's going to be really interesting to see kind of what this defense becomes like just this. I guess this is a small kind of tangent, but like we saw under Andy Avalos really big, significant improvement right away in that first season. I mean, his first season as defensive coordinator was, was one of the better seasons that they've had um, in a while. And it's going to be interesting to see how quickly Tim Druder kind of gets things sorted out. And like, Curious to see, and, and it's hard because the 2020 season is impacted by COVID, so the numbers are, I don't know, I don't know how much to take away from it, but I guess it will be interesting to see, like, do we actually see market, you know, marked improvement from the Oregon defense from 2020 to 21 with the switch from defensive coordinator or not? Um, because I, I could see a scenario where they're about the same statistically in 2021, you know, probably improve in a couple of areas. Like I think one of the things that hurt them in 2020, they just didn't force very many turnovers. And I know throughout the season, they just talked about a lot of that was just kind of, you know, unlucky bounces. The ball didn't go their way or or whatnot. And that that's part of it, but gotta be opportunistic. So I I could see that number kind of 
you know, realigning and, and maybe the number of turnovers they force goes up. But like, I think overall, like I'm not going to be stunned if it's pretty comparable statistically from 2020 to 2021. And I'm not trying to slight Tim DeRuder, but it's, you know, it's a tough ask to, 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 to see significant improvement across the board in the first year. I know we saw it a little Andy, under Andy Avalos. We saw it under Jim Levitt. But those are different circumstances, different defenses that they were inheriting. So I, I think like, can they be really good on defense in 2021? Yeah, I think so. And I don't, I don't know if it's going to be immediately. I think Ohio State's early, but like to me, I, I think just big picture, I'm curious to see how many, like what kind of strides they make over the course of the entire season and, and, and kind of what the ceiling can be. Cause this is already a defense that's pretty darn good. And I know they had some low points last year, but I'm not going to be stunned if it's, I don't want to say stag like they, the improvement is stagnated, but like if it's just not like drastic, drastic changes from a statistical perspective, at least. All right. Third question from at NK McDonald stacked recruiting classes last few years, lots of resources, OC and DC with lots of experience. How much pressure is on MC to bring the program to the next level in the next one to two years? Um, I think this is a fair question. Um, and I guess what does the next level entail? I, I yeah, I was gonna say it has to be that because they've already stacked consecutive conference championships together. That's reaching some sort of a level. So like I, like I think so I think it's kind of interesting. So like I look at this and I think like there's certainly there has to be some pressure for them to take that next step and make the playoffs. But I don't know if there's like like how do you, how are we defining pressure? Like externally, I think there's probably yeah there's a lot. I think the fan base wants to make the playoffs. Something they haven't done since the very first college football playoffs back in 2014. Um, you know, the program is back on the rise. Like, I think there's that pressure, but I think internally, like internally, I don't think like, I don't, wouldn't say Cristobal is even close to being on the hot seat. Like it's not, I don't think like, like, I don't think if they don't make the playoffs in 2021 and 2022, he's jobs up for like, I don't think his job's in the air. Like, I, I think he's probably, you know, and, and, and then that's also back to back losing seasons. Yeah. I was going to say have that's his job be up in the air. Yeah, that's and that to me that's also assuming like they don't make the playoffs, but they're continuing to be kind of right around where they are now, where they're winning conference championships or at least competing for them, playing in you know New Year's Six bowl games or at least kind of in the discussion for them. Like if they're winning nine to tw- nine to eleven games, like I don't think his jobs like I don't think there's any job security questions. Um, but like I I would be really surprised if Mario Cristobal is like not the head coach at Oregon into the mid 2020s unless it's by his own decision. Right. Um, I mean, like, what do you think, Matt? Like, I mean, I think, I think externally there's always going to be pressure and expectation as Oregon recruits at a level they've never done before. They should be playing for playoffs. But the reality also is the teams that are making the playoffs, only four teams make it. The teams that make it are recruiting at the same level, if not even slightly better than Oregon right now. And to reach that level, you have to be really, really special and have a really special season. And, so like I, I know everybody wants to make it playoffs or bust and and I get that instinct and it's you know that's the goal every season is to win a national championship but like I also go like like I I don't know if we want to like get to the place here where if, if they don't make the playoffs in Mario Cristobal's first five seasons it's like this guy's not the coach we need to go rebuild because the reality is I think they've got something pretty good brewing right now and and I know it doesn't reach maybe all the external expectations but they're certainly hitting some of those benchmarks. I mean, Oregon's had Oregon's had two losing seasons since 1994. So 
the bare minimum at Oregon right now is you need to have a winning record. Um, one coach. So in those two, those two years in which they had losing seasons, the ducks went uh, five and six in 2004. Mike Bellotti was not fired, but he did feel quite a bit of pressure um, that off season. He cleaned house in the OC department um, Gary Crouton was out or maybe it was Gary Crouton was in after that. Um, I can't remember, but nonetheless, he had a little bit of pressure and the program went 10 and two the following year, seven and six in 2006, which, um, was a little bit of a dip, but they bounced back with nine and four and then 10 and three, 10 and three, Chip Kelly comes in and we know the rest, you know, they win, I think 10 or more games over seven straight seasons. I think um, Helfrich is the last coach to have a losing record. He was fired four and eight. Um, and that was in part because, you know, they just made the national championship game two years ago. Um, the program could have competed for a national championship if the quarterback Vernon Adams didn't get hurt the year before that. And we saw, you know, the program really seeping a little bit in 2016. Um, so I, I, I think for, for Cristobal, really to feel pressure, it's a, it's back-to-back losing seasons. And, and probably, you could probably convince me back-to-back seven and six seasons. Um, like if they don't have improvement and winning season improvement, like if they go, if, 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 they go seven and six and then they go seven and six again, mm-hmm. there's going to be a little bit of uh, pressure going Agreed. into that next year. Back-to-back losing seasons. Yeah. He'll probably be coaching maybe not for his job, but he could be in a position where he might have to clean house um, if they have a third straight losing season. Uh, and, and, but you also could argue if they have three straight losing seasons, it, he could be let go. Yeah. Now, like, if they go eight and four and then they go eight and four again, I don't think he's internally feeling pressure externally. He will from the fan base, but they, you know, they, I, I don't think, you know, all of a sudden fan sports not going to drop off. Um, you know, it's just the fan base is going to be pissed off. Um, that being said, if you don't, if they don't make the playoffs in the next three years, I feel like that's kind of going to be a disappointment. You don't even have to win a game in the playoff. Just get there, get back, get to that. And it's kind of more of like, I'm not mad. I'm just disappointed, you know, type of a deal where we're still behind you hundred percent, but we really thought, you know, we really thought this was our window to get into the playoff. These, you know, these next three or four years and we didn't do it. Yeah. I think that's the right way to approach it. And I, I, I think it'll be interesting to see, like I, I, I've, I've already made my predictions for the 2021 season. I have them going nine and three. Um, that was disappointing to a lot of fans who have them going like 11 and one or, or, or not losing a game. And that would include beating Ohio state in, you know, Columbus. But like, let's say they go nine and three the next couple of years. They're, they're, that's going to be disappointing for people. Like, you know, I think even nine wins is, yeah. is to the, at this point, not what they wanted. And, and even if they won a bowl game and they go 10 and three, I think that's going to be a bummer for people. Um, 
because I, I do think you've now, and this is what happens. You elevate the program, the expectations shift. And, and there are certainly people who are thinking playoffs every season and that's how they enter the season. And that's a really difficult thing to do. Again, four teams make it and the teams that make it lose between zero and one games. And those are incredibly, that's incredibly difficult to do. Again, the PAC 12 has had exactly zero teams make it through their conference unbeaten since they expanded about 10 years ago. They've had nobody do it. Even the 2014 team didn't do it. The last team from the conference, it was PAC 10 to go unbeaten was Oregon in 2010 uh, or 2009. But like, you know, either way, like it's just difficult to do this. So it takes a lot and it takes everything kind of working out. And it takes, I think really it takes some special leadership from the players. And so that's the kind of thing that like also has to go into this. I'm not saying that if they don't make, I'm not trying to put it on the players instead of putting them on the coach. Cause that there's certainly all work into this, but like, it's, it's not like if, if this team does not elevate itself and, and they, you know, fall back a little bit, like it's not just because Mario Cristobal failed it. And he, of course he brought in the recruits and that was, that's his, some of his decision-making and it's his culture. But, like, you have to look around a little bit because it's just difficult to take that next step. It is. And, and not a lot of teams get an opportunity there. And, and it's, um, you know, we've seen now for the last half decade, it's basically the same three to four to five to six teams playing for every year. And for Oregon to insert themselves into that, it's going to take some big steps being made. And I'm not discounting that they can't do it, but I also think with the expectation is playoff, playoff, playoff every year, that's fine. But also understand it's really, really difficult to do that. And, and you should not, like, be careful what you ask for. If, if Oregon were to go nine and three the next two seasons in the regular season, let's say they win a bowl game each year, and maybe they win the conference still, even though they lose three games, don't be thinking they need to change the coach because you've seen it happen at tons of programs where they get that feeling of, let's, we got to make a change at head coach, got to make the change, and they end up hiring somebody who's even worse, and it puts them in, a, in, in an even worse spot. So um, you got to be very careful with how you handle this. And I think Oregon has a really good head coach right now even if they don't reach these at next level expectations um, like the question asks. All right. Next one from at MVH underscore genetics. Don't hear a lot about special teams. They usually are the difference in a win or a loss in a few games. Give me your return candidates, any updates on competitors for special teams, what young guy to look for. Um, well, I love special teams. Uh, so I, I, I'm, I'm game to talk about this a little bit. Uh, I think you've got your punter and your kicker spot solidified going into the season, which is not something that we felt necessarily great about going into 2020. I think both those positions solidify themselves. So that's a win. You know, you lost, you lost Blake, Blake Maimon after 2019 and Tom Snee went out there and had a great season as a punter, uh, basically replicated those numbers. You feel really good about him being your guy there. And I think obviously Henry Cattleman, you know, I, he was great in, in limited sample size. And I actually, I included in my, you know, on Monday, I put a story up on the site, you know, 10 players that will kind of help to determine if the team reaches its ceiling in 2021. And one of them right. was Henry Cattleman. I just, because like, I think we think he's really good. And I think he looked really good in the kicks. Like I'm not discounting that, but it was also, Do we really had, know that. Yeah. I mean, he had four kicks, you know, he had four field goals he made all season. So like, I like, you know, and like, that's not a massive sample size and, you know, there was a streak during the 2020 or sorry, the 2019 season where Camden Lewis hit four straight field goals. You know, I'm not including a game winner. And like, I, I don't, I'm not trying to say Camden Lewis should have the job because I think it's pretty clear who should be the better kicker. I'm, my, my point basically is like, let's, 
not anoint him the best kicker Oregon's ever had. And let's just say, like, I think they've got a very solid kicker. I think the kicking game is pretty sorted out. I mean, I think the question is, like, can Henry Cattleman be the kickoff specialist? What happens there? That was a role he didn't carry, even though we know he has a big leg. So, like, there's that that aspect of things. Um, In terms of return candidates, I think – it's interesting looking at the way the 2020 season played out because we had thought obviously in 2019, like, okay, Mikhail writes your kickoff return guy for the next four years or however long he's on the team. He's your guy. But like by the end of the season in 2020, he was not doing that. He was not holding those rules. It was Chris Hudson. So like Chris Hudson's probably a name to know in kickoff returns. Um, Travis Dye was the punt returner for most of this past season. I would suggest that that, probably stays the same until unless somebody changes it up or, or if like, you know, I think one thing you could think about is, is, and maybe this is part of the reason Mikhail Wright stopped being kickoff returner. We should ask Cristobal about it, but like, is he potentially putting his role, you know, on offense, which is greater at risk by being out there and taking shots. And if that's the case, maybe you make a change, but like, I'm not going to be surprised at all if it's as simple as like Mikhail Wright ends up being the kickoff returner full time again. and, And you've got, Travis Dye is your punt returner. I know those aren't like the sexy names, but like those are players that have done it and have done it at, at a fairly high level. Like Wright was really good in 2019 and Travis Dye didn't have a lot of explosive plays in 2020, but like he also didn't muff punts and didn't, you know, cause a lot of issues there. So like reliability is almost more important to me in the punt return game than it is. Like if you have, I mean, you want, you want both, you want the guy who can take it to the house, but like, I think you also want the guy who's not, <laughs> who's not a liability to, to catch the football. Um, Young guys to look for in terms of the return game. Um, I think that's kind of hard to know without having seen any spring practice in terms of like the incoming guys. But like obviously Troy Franklin was somebody who came in or who comes in with a ton of hype about his special, you know, his, his, his ability with the ball in space. And then like a seven McGee is a guy who I'm not going to be surprised. Like that seems like that would fit his skill set as well. Um, I know a couple of the, the corners they signed were guys that were good return players. Avante Dickerson, had some really impressive highlights doing that. Even like a Jeffrey Bassa right. was a safety recruit. So like there's certainly names of guys who did this in high school, but like, it's hard to be like this new guy is going to be the guy given that he, ha- we haven't seen them play just like, it's hard for me to suggest Ty Thompson is going to be the quarterback when we haven't seen him and play at this level either. Yeah. I, I just think, I, I think the, the freshman class, that's coming in, there's going to be a a wide range of guys that could be on special teams. Um, I also think like a guy like Flo, he could, he could be someone who maybe doesn't start, but becomes a household fan favorite name from on-field production because of what he does during kickoffs and, and punt return coverage and stuff like that. Like, I think that's going to be a huge area for him to be able to get on the football field um, and make an impact right away, Qu- quicker than replacing Isaac Slade Matuatia in the starting lineup. I-, I think there's a better chance that he he's a star on special teams than he is replacing Isaac. Um, I I'm with you on Cattleman. I I think he's good, but I don't know if we definitively know this, and you know it's going to be curious to see what kind of trust has he been able to develop over a four kick period where, you know, this it's Ohio state and it's fourth and one fourth and two 
from the 36? Does Oregon kick a field goal or do they go for it? Or do they punt? Yeah, I think isn't that, isn't that going to be the ultimate barometer of like yes. what they actually think here? I mean, yes. and that's not to say they haven't trusted him because they did try some. I mean, they tried like, what was it, a 47-yard field goal against Iowa State and he hit it right before half. Like, it's not like they haven't shown trust, but like you get in a game against Ohio State and what do you do when you're in – manageable distance for a field goal with a kicker who we think is good, but like, hasn't really, I don't want to say he hasn't proven it. Cause I think he has proven it with the opportunities he's had. He's made the kicks. Like you can't discount that, but I also think he, I want, I want, I want to see him. I want to get to the first half of the 2021 season before I'm ready to say like, he's, he is, I won't even say long-term guy. Cause I think he is, but before I'm like, Oh my gosh, they've got a real, real weapon here. Just because I, I think you have to see more than four kicks made. Um, to get there all right last couple here um fifth one from at duck for quacks quacks with a k interestingly enough not that any of these are likely which is an interesting way to start a question but which is the most likely and which is the least likely here's the three options football team becoming the next alabama men's basketball becoming the next duke women's basketball becoming the next yukon um and then he used he didn't use our hashtag. No one used the hashtag this week, guys. Get with it. Come on. Uh, he used hashtag not synodables, which I, I guess is just because he used he has a K in his Twitter handle name or, or whatnot. I don't know. I don't I don't quite understand it. I guess. But um, this is I don't know. Like I I I look at this and go like I yeah I agree. None of these are likely. I, I don't expect. I mean like not to say I don't think these teams can compete for championships. I think they can. But to be a program like an Alabama that is winning it or in the Champ, you know, competing for every season, say similar thing. Duke and UConn are actually a little bit right now, at least a little bit more infrequent national champion contenders. I like the like, Alabama one is the most unlikely scenario because college football right now feels like a six-team, five-team yes run where every year it's those five, six teams, right? Um, and especially on the women's side, parity is spreading. And yes, very quickly in the women's side. Um, so I feel like, A, UConn's run is going to be incredibly difficult to repeat for somebody. And I, I look at it as, like, we might not see in the Pac-12 with how the, the, the league is developing, you know, a ton of three-peats or two-peats. Like, yeah. it, it's becoming very loaded top to bottom. Yeah, and so I mean, then that's the thing that's kind of interesting here is I think parity in basketball is really different. Like Duke, not even Duke didn't make the field in the men's tournament this year, did they? Neither did Kentucky, neither did Indiana. Um, it's like the first time since 1950 that Kentucky, Indiana, and Duke all didn't make the tournament. Yeah, and so like I mean, so like I think I mean like I, I know I understand the the general can see the question, um, but I think it's it is worth noting that like football, Alabama is there every freaking year. I mean, every year, Alabama and Clemson are basically, you know, in the, you know, in the final four every season. So like, that's something that I find very unlikely to take place in part because like the reality is, is like Oregon can recruit at a really high level, which they do by the way, in all three of these sports. And so like, they're not that far off from a pure recruiting. Like if you just look at the pure, the pure recruiting rankings of the players on the rosters, like they're not that far off from being like kind of in the discussion for this stuff. But the reality is in football in particular, like, Alabama and Ohio state and, you know, even like Clemson and LSU and Georgia and, and Oklahoma from time to time, those programs recruit at such a high level every single season. I think Oregon's getting there, but to expect them to be better than those programs or to be 
equal is almost it's not really even a possibility based upon proximity and, and geography. I mean, for Oregon to start recruiting better than these South schools, like how are they doing that unless they're starting to get all the top South guys too, which is something that really doesn't happen. I know Ohio State's had some success in like Georgia and Florida, but like for the most part, um, the SEC kind of owns its territory and it'd be really hard for, for me to see that happening. So I'd say like, I mean, it's kind of interesting. Like I'd already say like, the men's team is kind of already like the Duke of the West coast at this point, besides I guess Gonzaga is the Duke of the West coast, but like in the pac 12 they're like, it's interesting. Cause I think Oregon and all three of these sports is already kind of like the preeminent team in the conference. I guess the question is how can you become the preeminent team nationally? So I, I would say, and maybe I'm just caught up in the moment of, of what these seasons have been. Like I would say the men's basketball team might be the most likely women's second likely. And then, you know, and then football least likely. Does that seem fair matter? Would you flip the top two? Uh, I would, I would, I would stick with what you have. That works for me. I mean, I, I think it's like literally a coin flip for the other two. Yeah, that's how I feel. I mean, they both recruit really elite. Um, the difference right now is that I think Kelly Graves has shown he can, with elite talent, really maximize it. I think, and, and this is probably not totally fair to him because he, this is his first season where he doesn't have Sabrina Inescu and there are any expectations. But Dane Altman has proven time and time again that he can take rosters that are in flux and going through all sorts of turnover and transition periods and by the end of the season make them really, really competitive. Right. Um, so, yeah, I think it's those two. Those. I mean, I, I think both the men and the women's programs are – I don't know if they're ever going to be Duke or UConn for their respective sports, but I, I do think they're both programs that are, are on, the right pay, you know, on the right path and, and are certainly capable of winning national championships in the 2020s. Like, I wouldn't be surprised if either of them do it. Um, it'll take a lot, but you know, I don't think it's likely anyone strings together – multiple championships and for duke like duke hasn't won it when was the last time duke won a national championship it's been a minute for sure when was that was that i don't even know who they're was that 2016 or something i think it might be i mean i'll pull it up real quick. quick i mean north carolina's won it before they have yeah that was the oregon made the final four yeah um pulling it up they won in 2015 yeah it was the year before that i guess or yeah. two years before so so, yeah, I mean, yeah, like even you, you throw Duke out there as, as the preeminent team and they haven't won it in over half a decade themselves. So um, I think that sort of speaks to the parody of men's basketball where Duke's not even in the field this year and the pr- program we look at as kind of the top dogs or they haven't even won a title in six years. It's tougher to do it in, in men's and women's basketball than it is in football. And that's why I think, not to go down a tangent, we'll end it here, but with this question, um, I, this is why I think football needs to expand the playoff. Same. More possibilities for upsets. Totally. Imagine if the imagine if the if the basketball tournament was sixteen teams, you'd have the yeah. same. You'd have a bunch of the same teams winning every year. Exactly. Every year, it would be the same four or five teams in the final four every year. If you had sixteen teams in it, just like it's the same four or five teams every every year right now because it's only four. Exactly. All right. Last question from at Scott underscore MBT. This is going to go over to Matt because this is hoops right here. How will Dana Altman contend with the length of Iowa, and why didn't he play Frank Kepnong more so we had a big man in the middle? Oh, and then period, I guess. OSU killed the Ducks on the boards. Well, the answer to the second part first, um, you have to look at this as Frank Kepnog is still behind defensively, and he's extremely limited offensively. All you get with him offensively is dunks. He doesn't have a jump shot. Uh, he doesn't have a ton of post moves. It's literally just dunks. 
and teams know that. Defensively, he's hit or miss. Sometimes in some games, he's really good. And sometimes in other games, he's horrendous. And with that uncertainty on defense and with the limited production that you get offensively, in the last three weeks, four weeks, is not the time for Oregon to have him play through those struggles and develop himself because you needed to win a ton of games to improve your NCAA tournament seating. You needed to win games to win the conference championship. You needed to win games to get yourself in a position where some Duck fans are saying, hey, they're going to upset Iowa. And so that's like I I think the biggest – gripe I have with Duck fans complaints this year is that Frank didn't play enough games and didn't play enough minutes. And I would argue that by saying, where, where was he going to play? And, and why would you keep Amarui off seven more minutes a game, a first team all conference player to get Frank more minutes to develop? Or why would you pull well, you know, Chandler Lawson won Oregon some games down the stretch in the regular season. And I understand that you, people don't like him and, and what he does offensively and, and whatnot. But defensively, Lawson is really good. He can guard guards. He can guard forwards. You know, this is a guy that's underrated. And I was totally okay with Oregon playing Lawson over Frank because – and look, I think Frank's going to be a good player. I, I think Frank could be an all-conference guy next year once he gets an offseason. I mean, to see where he was – at the beginning of the year when he first showed up to then where he was at the end of the year was a huge leap in of itself. And that was with basically zero practice. And I just don't think the, the jumps that he would have made would be worth not having your better forwards on the court. Amarui, Eric Williams, and Figueroa. Um, now, how will Oregon contend with the length of Iowa? I think, you know, Iowa's going to have an advantage if they play each other inside. That's for certain. Um, Oregon will have a hard time stopping All-American Luca Garza. He's probably going to be one of the best players to come through the college ranks, not pro-wise, just college basketball in the last 10 years, um, 15 years. I mean, Iowa's already retired his number. They view him that high. Um, But I also think for the struggles that Oregon will have on defense – Iowa will also have Garza will also have struggles with playing against Oregon on defense because he is a 6'11, 270 pound man. And while he is a good athlete for his size, he's nowhere near the level of athleticism that Eugene Amarui has, nor does he have the skill on the perimeter that Eugene Amarui has. And so that's going to be the key. Can you make Iowa play man to man? And if they play man-to-man, you need to attack him on the defensive end, get him into foul trouble. And if they play zone, which I expect they'll do, you have to make your three-pointers. You have to – you have, you don't, I don't think they have to make like 15 or 23s. They just have to consist – they have to make a good percentage of them, like 45 or better, 40% or better. They can't shoot in the 30s. They have to be a reliable three-point shooting team – that will stretch the defense out, which will open up driving lanes for mid-range stuff. What, I, just I, I, We've already done a full tournament podcast 
for this game, you know, for these games. And obviously Iowa, we're, we're jumping ahead over VCU. Um, like what's your confidence level that they make it to the second weekend right now? Um, I, I think it's probably one of those where I'm like, I hate doing percentages, but I know it's you're like a one in that. three chance they, they beat Iowa. Like okay. they play three times, they probably win one. And that's the beauty of the tournament that it's not a series. It's a one-off and you just have to hope it's that one time that you're better than them. Um, real quick, just to give you an idea here, I have no idea how much they matched up against each other. Okay. But Luca Garza as a sophomore for Iowa back in, uh, 2018, 2019 started 30 of 32 games, averaged 13 points, four and a half rebounds. Uh, he shot 53% from the field. This was his kind of like coming out party where as a sophomore, he was viewed as a, as a guy that's like, wow, Nick, he, he's turned the corner. He's going to be truly one of the best players in college basketball as a junior next year. He played against Rutgers with Eugene Amarui twice. Now, I don't, this is just looking at the box scores. There's, this is probably unfair and shouldn't do, but they went one and one against Rutgers. He had 10 points on three of five shooting and uh, in, in, in a loss. He committed one foul. He played 24 minutes against Rutgers in a win. He played 32 minutes. He had one foul, but he had five points, three rebounds. So I don't, I can't remember, or excuse me, it's seven points and seven rebounds in a, in a win, but he shot three of 10 from the field. I don't know what Rutgers' roster was like, but that was a game in which Eugene Amarui was probably matched up some with Luka Garza. And then in either game, Luka Garza didn't go nuts in that game. So take that for what you will. It could be, Use you know completely useless information. It could be a you know something that foreshadows what's going to happen if these two teams play again. Um, but I I just think the confidence level for Oregon like one in three chance like it's gonna I probably would think they will lose. They'll probably be like a six point underdog, five point underdog to Iowa. Um, but it's also a team that I think they could win uh, and they could beat like. Iowa has one of the best players in the country, but then beyond that, they've got a couple really good players, but they don't have a, this roster that's just like completely stacked full of NBA dudes. I mean, Luka Garza is may, maybe not even an NBA guy. No, it's it, it's it's certainly going to be interesting to see if they get to that matchup, how it faces up. And I think, Garz is the key, right? If they shut, if they can slow him down a little bit, it might be more favorable than we think. And I will also say, the last time we kind of quote unquote overlooked a team from Iowa on a podcast, that didn't do, go too well for us. So, <laughs> and, and I'll and I'll also say, Matt, you don't love percentages, but you think there's a thirty three percent chance that uh, that we're going to beat Iowa. <laughs> so there you go. Yeah, I do. I I think there's a decent chance. Um, it's probably not like a coin flip. And it's probably not going to be like, wow, it's going to take a miracle to win this game. It's, it, it's, it's one in which like they play 10 times, Oregon probably wins four, you know, this, this season. 
Um, and it, 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 they're capable of doing it, and it's just going to need that Oregon plays an A-plus game, and we'll see if that happens. I, I think it could, but it, it, it's going to be tough to do. All right, that's going to do it for us here on the Odds and Audibles podcast. Thank you for listening to the mailbag. We'll have a football DB-centric one coming up later this week. And until that time, you've been listening to the Odds and Audibles podcast. Talk to you later, folks. Old man winter here. If I had it my way, it would stay winter all year long. Short days, wind chill, black ice, and a good polar vortex. Oh, <laughs> Heaven. Wait, is it getting warm in here? Your cold snap is over, old man winter. Spring has arrived. Spring. Spring is here, which means it's the perfect time to get away in the Hyundai you've always wanted. Visit the Hyundai Getaway Sales Event, where you can get great deals on all of our award-winning Hyundai models, like the tech-filled Tucson and Kona, as as well as the spacious Palisade. Enjoy wherever you go with the peace of mind that comes with America's best warranty and three years or 36,000 miles of complimentary maintenance. But hurry in. These deals won't last. Add more joy to your journey at the Hyundai Getaway Sales Event. Now get 0% APR or up to 1,500 bonus cash on the Hyundai Tucson. Now, during the Hyundai Getaway Sales Event. Offers end soon. Call 562-314-4603 for details.